0: Several times in past episodes of this podcast, especially when discussing things like globalization, I've mentioned a broad governmental system called a liberal democracy, And this system of governance, sometimes also referred to as Western democracy, though I would argue that title is less apt today, as this organizational model is used worldwide, not just in the traditional Western world. But this model is particularly relevant within discussions surrounding topics like globalization because it's so widespread. Liberal democracy as a broad governmental concept has mostly kicked the ass of all other governmental models post-World War II. Part of the reason we have globalization, the interconnectedness between nations worldwide, on the scale that we have today, is that a huge percentage of the governments on the planet are willing to play ball according to the guidelines set down by these liberal democracies. Their model of doing business is just really solid compared to other models we've tried. So there's plenty of incentive for even outright dictatorships to act like liberal democracies when it comes to their outward-facing trade goods and diplomats and things of that nature. Now, World War II, if you zoom out and look at the context of the struggle, was... A lot of things, but one of the things that it was was a war between three main ideologies. The liberal democracies of most European nations and North America and oceanic nations like Australia New Zealand, the fascist regimes of Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy, and the so-called communism of the Soviet Union and their satellite states, which in reality was better described as a Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist-Pseudo-Democratic-Centralist government, which in its World War II era incarnation was leaning heavily toward a philosophically shrouded totalitarianism in which the personality cult of Stalin overwhelmed the ostensible goal of reaching a more ideologically pure global communist state ruled by the workers. The supposed intention of all that abuse was to get a proletariat state in place, but in practice, that in-between abusive, secret police written situation became an end unto itself, rather than a means to an end. The liberal democracies of the world allied with the Soviet Union after the Hitler-led fascists betrayed Stalin, and that alliance led to the defeat of the fascists. But later spun into the Cold War, which was a standoff between the liberal democracies and the Soviets and their allies. Now, thankfully, the Cold War remained cold, at least at the highest level. The Korean War was one of several proxy conflicts between the two most powerful nuclear-armed government structures that umbrellaed over the rest of the modern world, but those two nations, thankfully, never became embroiled in total war with each other, A situation that would have almost certainly led to a significant portion of the planet being nuked, and a high percentage of the human population, everywhere, killed off as a consequence. But in the early 90s, the Soviet side of this equation collapsed, economically, leaving the planet with the near-hegemony of these liberal democracies, that near-hegemony formalized via organizations like the modern United Nations. Now, the UN and other such structures exist in large part to help ensure that another Cold War never coalesces. It also exists in part to ensure that liberal democracies flourish and propagate. There are non liberal democratic governments that are members of these organizations, however, and especially today, the term liberal democracy isn't as granular as it needs to be to accurately describe the variation. In governmental systems that exist within the founding bodies of these organizations, much less those that exist worldwide. And what I mean by that is a liberal democratic government is just one type of republican government, meaning a government that is part of the larger family of governments that are based on the republic model, not republican in the political party sense. You know which other governments are republics? China. Russia, North Korea, through some lenses. Three governments that are seemingly about as far afield from the governmental systems of the United States and Europe and Australia as humanly possible. And yet all of these governments are predicated on a similar idea, that government is considered to be a public matter rather than the private concern of a ruling body. And although they all have different mechanisms when it comes to how their citizenry take part in politics, and in some cases, those mechanisms are more limited than others, or even in some cases more for show than actual practice. They all still fit under the Republican umbrella, regardless. In practice, this variation is much more apparent. And there is a lot of song and dance, a lot of going through the motions that can make a government seem to be something it's not. North Korea's formal name, after all, is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is a name some political theorists have compared to that of the Holy Roman Empire, which, it has been said, was not holy, Roman, or an empire. But this goes to show how little labels can actually mean to the day-to-day operation of a country, while at the same time technically bunching together seemingly disparate types of government under those headers when it comes to matters of broad categorization there are 149 republic-based governments on the planet today there are 36 constitutional monarchies and there are seven absolute monarchies and then there are three governments that don't have any constitutionally defined basis for their government at the moment it's significant that for all of our differences we still have so much in common And part of the reason for this is that some elements of governments, like a constitution which codifies the relationship between the government and the governed, are tools that have proven so handy that they're seen in almost every modern government. Tools of this kind have spread and flourished because the global economic infrastructure has encouraged it. Constitutional governments find it easier to do business with other constitutional governments, and as we all become more aware of each other, due to technologies like the internet and the ever-evolving mass media, those in charge find it easier to stay in charge, or at least keep someone who holds their same ideologies in charge, when there is a constitution of some kind that outlines their relationship with those they govern. Now there are still immense and important differences between a constitutional republic in which the country is held together by an authoritarian personality cult like North Korea, and one in which those in charge must legally make a concerned effort to keep elections legit, even when the ideological differences within the country seem immense. But what's not always evident, I think, is that despite all of our differences internally between political parties and ideologies, but also externally between the governments that exist around the world today, We are all actually very, very similar in some fundamental ways. And that's what I want to talk about today modern governments and why it's so difficult to imagine alternatives that deviate in any real way from what we have tried before. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Breakfast isn't real. I don't mean that it's not something that happens, and I don't mean that it's not a label we apply to a particular meal of the day in many places around the world. It is real in that sense. But in the sense that it's actually distinct in some meaningful, tangible way from just eating food, Eating food within any other context? That it's actually a distinct thing? No, it's totally fake. Breakfast is made up. It's an invention. The Old English word "disner," which later evolved into dinner, meant to break one's fast and was therefore the first meal of the day, indulged in after fasting all night. But that meal label shifted in meaning in the mid-13th century to its more common modern position as the last meal of the day before going to sleep. Then, for a while, the Old English term meat, which meant literally morning meal, became the dominant first meal of the day term. But that, too, was replaced in the 15th century when breakfast, literally to break one's fast in modern English rather than old English, Became the standard way to describe the first meal of the day in the English speaking world. So the term itself is not fundamental, it's relatively recent. But the meal, the act of eating a meal in the morning and what we eat as part of that meal, these are also quite recent inventions and nowhere near universal. For most of recorded history, the first meal of the day in many cultures included the most calorie dense foods possible to get people ready for whatever work they needed to undertake. In the U.S., that first meal often consisted of some kind of corn-based bread, of which there were many types, and which often had colorful names, like Johnny Cakes, Corn Pone, Ash Cans, Hoe Cakes, and Corn Dodgers. Some of that changed in the U.S. and the larger Western world in the mid-19th century, with the emergence of the Clean Living Movement, which synced up with a Reformation movement within the Christian church, and which led to the creation of cold breakfast cereals, including the very first prepackaged breakfast cereal, Granola, which was created by John Harvey Kellogg, namesake of the Kellogg's brand of cereals, and which was a blatant ripoff of a product called Granula that was invented by a man named Dr. James Caleb Jackson, who created Granula to serve to patients at his sanitarium. These cereals were developed as part of the aforementioned Clean Living Movement, a movement that also, notably, led to the invention of graham crackers, which are a somewhat bland cookie cracker invented by a man named Sylvester Graham Graham preached about living healthily, making your own bread, and following the Christian God's natural laws, which in his mind included things like bathing regularly, brushing one's teeth every day, avoiding all spices and excitement of any kind, eating a vegetarian diet, and never, ever masturbating, or having sex for anything beyond the purposes of procreation. So some of Graham's ideas stuck, some didn't. But his movement, which evolved into a kind of very clean Christian offshoot cult called the Grahamites, were part of the same clean living movement that led to temperance laws in the U.S., Graham crackers, and the preponderance of cold breakfast cereals that emerged in the years following his rise. But even back in those days, for context Graham died in 1851, Breakfast still wasn't the creature it eventually became. The idea that there were three meals in a day wasn't a given. In most cases, one's breakfast was a bit of food you maybe gobbled down on the way out the door to pack in some calories before the workday began. It was something to keep you sated until your actual meals later in the day. And throughout history and around the world, the idea of meals weren't really a thing. Romans considered it to be most ideal to have just one big meal every day, and some Native Americans ate smaller portions of food throughout the day. The concept of a meal just didn't make sense for their culture and their lifestyle. Where meals were a thing, the three-meals-a-day concept became more standardized when work became more standardized, and that happened en masse during the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, folks had to be somewhere from one time period to another Usually with a break in the middle. That routine led to the formalization of breakfast before work, lunch during that break at work, and dinner after work. The most modern iteration of breakfast here in the US took shape during World War II. In 1944, General Foods launched a campaign for their Grape Nuts breakfast cereal that oriented around the concept and slogan that breakfast was the most important meal of the day, which is where that whole idea came from, an ad campaign for a breakfast cereal. Other slogans, like eat a good breakfast, do a better job, followed, and this campaign reinforced the concept of breakfast as a vital meal that you sit down to eat within the American zeitgeist. Even though the solid science that they claimed to have, to back this idea of breakfast being vital, was non-existent. There are still many people today who will tell you, with an air of authority, based on that cultural knowledge passed down from parent to child, that breakfast is totally vital for their health. Something that, again, has never been shown to be the case scientifically, and has absolutely not been the case historically. So, what are we to learn from this? First. There have been some bizarre cults here in the U.S., and those cults have often had long-lasting effects on our perception of things. And also, graham crackers seem like a really weird thing to keep selling once you know they were invented to essentially keep people from masturbating. Second, breakfast as a concept isn't as concrete and real and natural as we might think. It's a relatively new invention, and the perception that we have of it, of what people eat for breakfast, of when it's eaten, and if it's eaten at all, and that it's a normal part of the day in the first place, have all been invented and marketed to sell us things and make us better factory workers. Third, because breakfast is less fundamental than we might have thought, we are liberated from prior expectations of what breakfast entails, if anything. We can eat it, or not. We can eat it while sitting down, as with an actual meal, or we can eat it in transit on the move. We can eat cold cereal, we can eat beans and toast, we can eat aloo paratha, which is an amazing Indian dish that's like an unleavened bread stuffed with potatoes and a spiced gravy. I ate aloo paratha almost every morning when I lived in Calcutta, and I remember how bizarre it felt to be eating something that at first felt like it should be a lunch or a dinner dish. Breakfast. But breakfast can be pizza or hot wings or whatever you like. It's whatever you want it to be, including nothing at all. You do not need to organize your mornings around breakfast and view your world through the lens of a made up organizational mechanism. Breakfast is an illusion. We can make of it whatever we please. Now, I bring all of this up not just because breakfast is interesting and graham crackers are weird. But to demonstrate how often we take things like this for granted, breakfast is a useful habit for many people, and it has solidified in our consciousnesses through repetition. Because of fond memories of breakfast with our families and friends, because of commonly shared habits and routines, after years of having breakfast as something that you eat, or in some cases maybe you define yourself in part as someone who doesn't eat breakfast, This meal can seem as real and as inevitable as thermodynamics or gravity, but it's not. It's an organizational structure that we made up. It wasn't destined to be, and it might not always be. It could disappear, and after a time, no one would miss it. Just as few people miss the late-night period of wakefulness many of our ancestors had in the years before the electric light. This concept was lost with the dawn of industrialization, but for most of history, writings indicate that folks would wake up in the early morning, sometime in the neighborhood of 1 to 4 a.m., and would lay there and think, they would read, they would pray, they would have conversations with their partners, or they would have sex with their partners. This was a normal rhythm of life, to wake up early in the morning for like an hour or two, get some stuff done, and then go back to sleep. It was an organizational system for their day, but it drifted away without leaving much evidence of itself, short of all the mentions of it in the writings that were later documented and written about by Roger Eckerk, the author of a book in which he describes this lost time apportioning system that became obsolete in the age of cheap light, later bedtimes, and more rigid work schedules. Breakfast is a useful introductory concept for the topic of government, Because for some people, the idea that breakfast isn't real, in the sense that we might assume it's real, can be a little bit uncomfortable, even somewhat disturbing. It's awkward imagining the non-reality of things, the non-concreteness of things, that we have always considered to be solid, to be unmoving, inevitable aspects of life. We might imagine bizarre variations of breakfast, or even imagine not having it at all, but we would imagine not having it in the context of it being a thing you're supposed to have, that most people have, and that shapes the way we think about our time and all of our other habits. So if that discomfort is the effect that thinking about a meal can have on a person's psyche, it's maybe easier to understand how difficult and disconcerting applying this same way of thinking to other structural frameworks in our lives can be. Structural frameworks like, for instance, our governments. The article that I want to use as a starting point today comes from Vice, and it's entitled, What is to be done? It is time to consider alternate systems of governance. This is a piece that goes in a few different equally interesting directions. One facet of it is kind of a summary of who the author is, explained via a few quick tales about his recent history. The author Barrett Brown recently got out of prison, where he landed due to his association with the hacktivist collective Anonymous, though his connection to them is somewhat tenuous these days, as he claims to have broken formal ties with them in 2011. But regardless of the truth of that statement, he has been charged with helping spread leaked information online through his website, Project PM, which is essentially a WikiLeaks that focuses on leaked information related to the inner workings of the military industrial complex. In December of 2012, Brown was indicted for his sharing on his website a link to data that was stolen via a hack from the private intelligence company Stratfor. And though the hacker who stole the information, Jeremy Hammond, pleaded guilty and received a maximum of 10 years in prison for his crime, Brown pleaded not guilty and faced up to 45 years for sharing that link on his website. Brown has been involved in various ways with many other high-exposure hacks, and aspects of cybersecurity and online transparency movements over the past decade or so. He's also a journalist who has published tons of work on these and related subjects, and on how the online world and software intersect with society and what that means. So part of this article covers that side of things, who this is, and why this person is talking about what he is talking about. So that unto itself is pretty interesting. Another facet of the article, though, is a discussion about the current status of our government here in the U.S. and what he sees as convenient and important lies that are told in order to perpetuate the system that we've been building. He also addresses some of the main structural flaws in that system. From the article, quote, It has become more and more difficult, as the years proceed, to maintain the fiction that the American Republic... Is fundamentally sound. An associated myth that the great majority of the American electorate are decent people who are entirely capable of overseeing the single most powerful apparatus in history has also become less viable. The establishment, as we may as well join in terming it, has likewise lost credibility for reasons ranging from nonsensical to inarguable. The end result is a crisis of moral authority and even of amoral authority. This is a society that cannot even produce a proper strongman, but it can certainly produce a disaster for ourselves and for the world. And so that we can place the idea of disaster in its proper context, recall that the baseline of 21st century America involves a sort of constitutional police state with unprecedented incarceration rates, increasingly militarized law enforcement, an unaccountable intelligence community with a long history of unconstitutional behavior, and a judicial and legislative culture that, all told, has officially rendered tens of millions of Americans criminals via prohibitions on drugs, prostitution, and gambling. Meanwhile, due to unchecked growth in federal statutes of extraordinary broadness, it has been convincingly estimated that the average American unwittingly commits Three felonies a day. This is a country that can continue to exist above the level of a fully mobilized gulag state, only to the extent that its laws are not actually enforced. End quote. And then, a little further in the article, quote, What is the proper role, then, for the citizen who takes citizenship seriously and counts it a duty to defend the rights not just of Americans but of those populations abroad who ultimately bear? The brunt of our civil failings. For many, the answer is to continue the hard work of engaging within the system. Voting, working for better candidates, donating time and money to the organizations that do what they can to prevent things from deteriorating even further. This is entirely appropriate. But even the reformers are likely to recognize now that this may not be sufficient in the face of the political conditions we face. And that the consequences of a morally failed American republic continuing on its present course for even just another decade would be irreparable. No competent observer of our current trajectory can today disregard this scenario or others far worse. End quote. And then finally, he gets into the meat of his argument giving an outline of an alternative governmental system predicated on some of the same technologies and organizational methods that allow groups like Anonymous to operate and perform complex tasks, despite being a distributed network of people who may never actually meet each other or even know who the person on the other end of the discussion is in real life. Quote, the most important fact of the 21st century is that any individual can now collaborate with any other individual on the planet. This has happened with extraordinary suddenness in historical terms. By the same accounting, it has also happened quite recently, and so remains largely unexplored. We cannot hope to know what this means as of yet, then, any more than someone who observed the advent of the printing press or gunpowder could have predicted, respectively, the Reformation or Europe's eventual seizure of much of the world. Nonetheless, the implications are becoming clearer as the years proceed. The internet itself has quickened the pace of our history, even as it makes the future more unpredictable." Quote. I once read a book about the higher education system that claimed that one of the most important best-funded functions of a university is instilling in students the absolute certainty that they and their offspring require university education. That they must come to feel that a university education isn't just a nice option, and perhaps required for certification in certain fields, but that it is a fundamental baseline necessity. Kids need to go to these type of schools. It's a part of one's life journey, no matter what they hope to achieve in life. There are some decent arguments to be made that sure it's great to have a higher education and those who are able to attain one are generally fortunate to be able to have that experience but one of the prime motivations behind this ideology according to this argument at least is the same prime motivator that inspired general foods to invest in forwarding the concept that breakfast is a meal that everyone should absolutely partake in every day because you are a fool if you do not economically it makes sense to convince people that your product is a vital necessity it's an investment in the future of the brand if more people eat breakfast every day it expands the scope of your market in perpetuity potentially and universities are likewise incentivized to ensure that future generations see buying their product as a norm as a necessity as a fact of life It helps them stay in the black. It is a very smart move on their part economically. Governments, it could be argued, have a very similar set of incentives. And some of those incentives are straight up economic, in that there is wealth involved. But the prime incentive for a government to convince its people that it is normal and a fact of life, that it is a necessity, that it is a concrete reality, is to, well, essentially keep itself going. That means keeping the people who have power in power. That means keeping the systems they've built while in power to increase their power alive and ticking. That means continuing to reinvest in new systems that do the same and new laws and to bring new people into the fold, all of which will also do their utmost to ensure this system within which they flourish will be maintained for the long haul. To do otherwise would be evolutionarily disadvantageous just as a creature that is inclined to walk off a cliff rather than reproducing wouldn't last very long in the natural world, an organizational system that didn't self-reinforce and defend against competing ideas wouldn't last long enough to become more than a footnote in the history books. And because of all the tools we have to convince each other of things today, even those who don't do terribly well within these systems, economically or otherwise, can be convinced to help sustain the model of organization under which they suffer. Patriotism is a branding exercise through which people are encouraged to cheer for their side as a moral imperative, rather than cheering based on some kind of quantifiable, definable rationale. We tend to feel certain things for our country, and by association, our system of government— not because of the specifics of the system itself, but because it's our system. And good people cheer for their team. That's what we're told. That's what we're brought up to believe. And although some people do cheer with a more clear-eyed purposefulness, it's incredibly difficult to distinguish between those who see through the emotional influence of patriotism and cheer for other quantifiable reasons, and those who have succumbed to that emotional influence And who don't realize it, but who are still able to come up with convincing justifications for why they feel that way post hoc to explain to themselves and others why they cheer. So they already know they're going to cheer, but they come up with justifications for why to explain why they feel that way after the fact. All of which is to say that like breakfast, governments are not real. They are made up of very real things, of very real people, of real infrastructure, of real pieces of paper upon which laws are written. They're made up of real wealth, but they are imaginary in the sense that they are actually just organizational structures we have come up with to label all that stuff and to decide how we separate it from everything else that is not part of our governmental aegis. So what is breakfast food? It is food that we have made different from other food by applying a label to it and thereby deciding that we would mostly eat it at a certain time of day, and with certain associations and expectations surrounding it. But in every real tangible way, it's just food, like any other food. Then what is a liberal democratic government? It's a collection of people and things that we've drawn borders around, and that we keep from bumping into each other, by using a system of incentives and laws. Our collection of people and stuff are the same as any other collection of people and stuff except for those labels. And we operate according to those incentives and laws because we believe the labels are real. Because we believe breakfast food is meant to be eaten at a certain time of day. Now, I don't want to imply that any of this makes the consequences of different governmental systems any less real. Calling something dinner instead of breakfast often has consequences. We tend to eat it far later in the day. And deciding that a collection of people and stuff operates under a Soviet-style authoritarian regime, will still result in the deaths of huge populations of innocent people who refuse to toe the party line, or who are part of an unfavored ethnic or religious group. Gulags are very real, with very real consequences for the people in them. And as a result of that, as a result of these very real consequences of the made-up organizational structures that we adhere to, These invented organizational structures are the closest made-up non-tangible thing that we have to a physical law in that what is decided within these systems tends to happen because everyone agrees to act as if these things are real. So seeing them for what they actually are, which is fake, while still being aware of their de facto reality can allow us to acknowledge their density and the very real consequences of their existence, while also working their immateriality into our thinking, into our considerations about what, for instance, might be done to fix the problems that exist within these structures. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, the majority of the planet, as of today at least, utilizes one main foundational structure for their government, that of the republic. There are huge differences between a place like North Korea and a place like New Zealand. Their governmental specifics make life vastly different for the people who live within their borders. And the division of power between the ruling class and the citizenry is barely comparable in terms of the metrics we might typically use to gauge such things. But that said, comparing these two governments is a bit like comparing two vehicles you're thinking of purchasing. If you line up all the governments that are based on the Republic model, you end up with an array of analogical buses and station wagons and motor scooters and SUVs, and these vehicles will be all the colors of the rainbow, plus some that are like neon or sparkly or so dark that they absorb all light that touches them. And if you just look at this collection of different vehicles and all the colors that they have and all the shapes and sizes, it looks like a great variety, right? But at the end of the day, they're all still vehicles. They all still move people around, ideally over roads. They all have some kind of seat for people to sit on. They all use internal combustion engines for locomotion. And those engines spin the wheels that they all have to make the vehicle move. There are a lot of differences between these models of vehicle, but fundamentally, they're all variations on the same. And I would argue that the same is true with the governments that exist today. Republics especially, but even those run by constitutional and absolute monarchies, they all have a governing body of some kind. They all have police and security and armies. They all have economies that operate in slightly different ways in the details, but fundamentally it's people producing things of value and exchanging them for other value within the country and externally. They all have different ways of enforcing laws. They all have different incentives to keep people towing the line. The fact that all of these governments can exist alongside each other means that there are enough similarities for coexistence to be feasible. Even the World War II era governments, all poised to attack each other due in large part to their philosophical differences, had far more in common than they had differences. The differences were incredibly important, but they were primarily of the different colored paint job variety when it comes to the vehicles that we're looking at, or maybe a different number of seats slightly different form factor. Structurally, they all operated roughly the same. Ruling class, a system of laws and incentives, a citizenry down below, an economic system that generated wealth based on the labor of those citizens, and so on. I feel like I should mention here that when having this type of discussion with another person, it's often valuable to identify what type of conversation you're actually having, like what level of discussion you're having. If you're talking about issues with, for instance, police violence or gerrymandering or political corruption, those can be deep issues, but they're also relatively superficial compared to other types of discussions you could be having. And they warrant solutions that exist within the current governmental context, meaning it's not terribly helpful to present the idea of fundamentally changing your entire system of government to solve a problem that should be solvable within the confines of that existing structure, within the current government model. On the other hand, if you are discussing issues related to a fundamental rearranging of how we live, of how we organize, of how we generate and share value, that is a topic that allows you to get a little weird. That encourages you to think outside the existing system, because that's where actual solutions are more likely to be found. So it's a good idea To establish that when you have this type of conversation. Otherwise, you might seem like some kind of crazy revolutionary who's going a little too far when all you want to talk about is the differences between political parties. But thinking outside of your current governmental system really isn't easy. It's a bit like living on a small flat island your entire life in some kind of pre boat era, surrounded by oceans and trees and trying to imagine mountains or volcanoes or lakes filled with liquid hydrogen, or virtual worlds in which you can exist without a body and have 18 senses, each of which have nothing to do with the senses you have in the physical world, would you even have the language to describe what you're trying to imagine? Would you have any reason to have the language for such things? Would you be capable of imagining the consequences Of living on an island that had lakes filled with liquid hydrogen when you'd never encountered anything even roughly corollary to that type of feature. Lacking any experiences even distant related to such things, how do we discuss what we're trying to imagine? How do we discuss things beyond what we've already experienced? This is similar to the problem anyone who tries to imagine a truly original organizational system for humanity or a piece of humanity, runs into. How, for instance, do we describe a governmental system that lacks any governmental body, that lacks any ruling class? No officials, no law enforcement, no laws. Maybe it's a world in which the incentives to behave in a certain way are strong enough that we don't require laws to enforce those norms. Or perhaps we've evolved ourselves to behave by nature where we have technology embedded in our brains that keeps us from harming each other? Or what if we live in a world of infinite plenty, a world in which we have technologies that allow us to make anything out of anything, to convert raw molecules into snow cones or supercomputers, and therefore economics of the traditional sort are completely unnecessary. We all have plenty of whatever we want, and unlimited free time, and conceivably unlimited potential since we could each build our own spacecraft and fly away or live underwater alongside super intelligent friendly sharks that we invented or we could create an impenetrable force field to defend ourselves should some other person decide for some reason to try to hurt us. How about a world in which we exist most of the time in a virtual space and that virtual space is so compelling so wildly entertaining and informative and interesting and amazing on every level beyond what we could ever hope to achieve in the real world that the real world becomes kind of like a a hospital or even a filing cabinet where we're all plugged in with just enough food and water flowing into us to keep us alive while we live our real lives digitally maybe we're just brains in jars at this point and further, what if automated systems manage our real bodies, allowing us to be completely unconcerned with the real world, should we choose to do so? And although we exist as a community online, one in which no one can, by the very nature of the network, harm each other, those who choose to exist outside of that digital world in tangible reality are left to fend for themselves in a world in which all the resources are being completely 100% utilized to keep these sleepers or these brains in jars logged into the network. Even while trying to describe those relatively tame, bizarre possibilities, I found myself falling short in terms of the proper language to describe what I had in mind. And those concepts didn't even go as far afield as they might have. They were still predicated on where things could conceivably go from here. In a future, or even near future scenario, based on certain not-too-crazy technological evolutions. Trying to conceive of things beyond that gets far trickier, and the further afield you go from what you know, from your island and your trees and your familiar ocean that surrounds you, the foggier and less distinct and well-defined those possibilities become, the more difficult it becomes to even imagine them. So in a world in which our trees and ocean are governments that look something like what we have today, and in which the governments we have in place are set up in such a way that they self-propagate and promulgate, not just trying to sustain themselves, but also generally to spread themselves, as that tends to increase the chances that they'll survive longer, it is rare in that type of situation that we have a real discussion about actual fundamental changes to our governing system. Not just about the possibility of a shift in the existing paint job, but a fundamental change to an entirely new thing. Rather than our blue minibus becoming a yellow sports car, maybe it becomes a cloud of quantum entangled particles that can teleport us as information to a location across the galaxy in seconds that type of change an adjustment or wholesale rebuilding of the very structure of such a system is uncomfortable to conceive of and it's almost inconceivable it's weird to think about and tricky to explain and it's not encouraged to consider such things either it's actually frowned upon because considering a government an organizational system different from your own that you live under talking about it could be construed as a threat to the system in which you exist. In a very real way, you're discussing the death of a super entity made up of millions or perhaps billions of people and replacing it with something new. That super entity would not be very super if it didn't have a built in failsafe to prevent that kind of thinking. And in the case of a place like the United States, that failsafe is called treason an act considered to be one of the most serious crimes you can commit because it would end the very system that decides what a crime is and which levies punishments for crimes. It's an existential issue. It's not easy to have a serious and productive discussion when doing so might result in your being labeled a traitor. For what it's worth, I happen to think we've landed on a fairly decent governmental system, all things considered, in the modern US. It's wildly imperfect in many ways, but the fact that I can say that and could even get more explicit listing the many, many complaints I have about how it runs and operates is already a leg up from some other modern governmental systems in which I would be jailed or killed for doing the same. That said, I personally. Don't think Western liberal democracies are where it all stops. I think we've got more innovation left in the barrel waiting to be used. I think we could solve a lot of the problems that exist in the world today by more intentionally using the tools that already exist. Not even theoretical stuff, the concrete things you could buy from the store right now, existing technologies like the internet. We are just unfortunately currently behind in terms of utilizing these tools to their full potential. It's like we've invented amazing new breakfast foods that change their flavor and texture depending on when you eat them. So if you eat them at different times of day, they taste differently, but we are continuing to only eat them in the morning because that is when breakfast is eaten. That's how our system works. We're adhering to old systems and not making use of new inventions. We have wonderful new materials to work with, but the same old made-up organizational structure is determining how we use them. As I mentioned, that article in Vice presents an interesting idea for an organizational technology that could help citizenry engage in a new, more direct type of democracy than has ever been possible before. This is another example of a new coat-of-paint type of solution, but it is a step in the right direction. Talking about this type of solution and trying it out even, I think, is a good idea. The tech itself could be an absolute nightmare. It could be that we're better off with an imperfect organizational system of governance than with a perfect software suite that allows us to self-govern really, truly badly. But it may be that such a technology would serve as a stepping stone to something better. Something that we can't see now because we don't have the language to describe it or the creativity to conceive of it or the tools to make it a reality, but which might become clearer and easier to see and more attainable realistically if we changed our perspective a bit, if we applied a new coat of paint to the existing vehicle. Concepts like a guaranteed basic income are similar to this in my mind. It's a bandage in that it props up our existing system rather than serving as a wholesale change, as something truly new, but it makes our existing systems more resilient and flexible, so we can move a little bit further in a few different directions. It's a solution that, if it worked, might give us the option of trying out some new shapes and sizes and colors for our vehicle before we move on to something radically different. Or to try out a completely different analogy, it might plug some of the leaks that many people can see growing in our current governmental roof so that we can wait a bit longer before having to decide whether we should repair that roof or move to a new home or learn to do something completely different like live underwater. I don't know that we'll ever change the governmental status quo in our lifetime or ever. I do think that learning to pick apart fundamentals, things we take for granted, is a valuable Skill and habit, even if it's uncomfortable sometimes. And I also think it's a good idea to at least attempt to evolve our existing systems to allow for more of this type of discussion to take place without consequence, so that we can better envision what our next steps might be without worrying that just by having that conversation, we might be considered by some to be traitors. We need our systems to be resilient, but they shouldn't sacrifice our overall well being to achieve greater resilience for themselves. Or, said another way, we shouldn't allow the current system's built in survival mechanisms to keep us from taking our next big leap to a potentially superior system. Just as we are unlikely to have ever developed computers without having first developed things like metal smelting and electricity. The systems in which we operate today are building blocks that will help us climb up to some next level. They are necessary rungs on a ladder. But although it's a good idea to keep our position on that larger ladder in mind and to be dreaming about what that next rung might look like, it's also in our best interest to ensure that the world of today Our current rung is as excellent a home as possible, that it's flexible enough to allow us to imagine and experiment without fear, and to look up and try to figure out what might come next, but also is sturdy and lovely enough to serve its purpose as an end unto itself, just in case sticking around for a very long time proves to be either desirable or necessary. (music) The book that I'd like to recommend today is by Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, and it's entitled Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. This is a relatively short book, but it is packed full of interesting information. The concept here is essentially an overview of how we are now capable of crunching big data sets, big data being a collection of data points numbering in the millions or billions. So huge data sets that we traditionally, one wouldn't have had access to and two wouldn't have been able to find much meaning in. But because of the dawn of things like the internet and Google search results and data that stems from those tools but also things like artificial intelligence, narrow AI that allow us to derive meaning from big data sets. We're able to take a look at these things and learn a whole lot about ourselves. And some of the information shared in this book is of the broadly sexual habits nature, and the purpose of that I think is to show how people might lie when giving data to somebody who asked them for a survey or when even talking to their doctor or their spouse. But then their search results might show something very different. Anonymized search results, of course, but it still shows population wise, you can compare data sets to show how many people are into certain sex acts, for instance, or curious about certain sex acts, how many people actually use condoms compared to how many people say that they do. And so showing the skewing of this data and our misperceptions about it, but also how different regions and different groups of people lie not just to the media, but in some cases maybe to themselves, to their loved ones, people who are very deep in the closet about a whole lot of different things. And so it's an interesting exploration of those types of data sets, how we've learned these things, and then the utility of big data as a whole. And that includes showing the potential here, but also usefully, I think, pouring some cold water on some of the more brazen assertions about how this will tell us everything, and all of the new facts that we generate this way will be completely accurate, 100%. There are a lot of different variables included in this type of research that you cannot account for by crunching big data, and I appreciate that this book addresses that as well. So if you're interested in hearing about that type of thing, about weird sex in different regions that claim to be pure as fresh fallen snow, or if you want to hear about how politicians are utilizing this data to manipulate us, consider checking out Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at ExcelLifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at Things.com. While there, consider signing up for the free Let's Note Things newsletter, which is a collection of links to interesting things that goes out every Monday. You can also feel free to reach out on social media and say howdy. I'm at Colin is my name on most networks and Colin Wright on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. I am Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week.